Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 84. 84. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back, everybody. (laughs) Welcome back. Welcome to episode 84. (laughs) Jen, you sound relaxed. Do I? Uh Uh-huh. Good. Because I'm putting it on. I was relaxed for a minute and then – Two days later. You guys, I I didn't mention it on last week's podcast because as you guys know, we have the curse of the podcast where if we mention of the pod. Anything that we're excited about, it falls through. I got to go. I took a page out of Sally's book. I would mm-hmm. never have done this if Sally didn't push me to and encourage me and also give me an Airbnb gift card for my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> but I took a solo trip. Just for two nights, I went up to – it was only about like an hour and a half away up in North Georgia. Um, There was this tiny little cottage, a she shed, if you will. Yeah. It was the most like gorgeous, like chandeliers, clawfoot tub, comfy bedding, adorable kitchen, porch overlooking a horse pasture and the mountains in the background, all by myself. It looked amazing. It was heaven. And if you got, if anybody wants to know more about it, it's called Oak and Ash Farm is the name of the farm. And uh-huh. um, I, it's in uh, Car- Cartersville, Georgia. No, that doesn't mm-hmm. sound right. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know where I went. Somewhere in Georgia. It's in but- Georgia. If you live in Georgia, hit Jen up. If you don't live in Georgia – yeah. Well, good for you. <laughs> but I super highly recommend it. This was the best Airbnb host I've ever encountered. I pull up and she was wearing um, – she greeted me at the door wearing a mask and she had mm. fresh baked cookies. Amazing. She, she had asked me what my favorite kind of music was and I said, oh, well, you know, I'm just coming to relax and so maybe some relaxing music. And she had like relaxing jazz playing on the Bose speaker. Just heaven. Yeah, and that's amazing. Um, it was the best. So I, uh, if anybody wants to know about this place called Oak and Ash Farm, and she has this little cottage for rent, and it's on the farm, and it's amazing. Uh, I'm so glad you got to go. I'm so I've been telling you for uh, what two years now. Yeah, <laughs> I've been like, you got to go on a, your own vacation. Just go. <laughs> I know. Jen's like, how do you go? I'm like, you just do. You just I say, know. I'm going, and then you go. <laughs> yeah. But it's, I just, hard. it's hard. It is hard to take time for yourself, especially when you know, like, oh, if I'm taking this time, that means that, like, my partner is going to have to carry a heavier load. But I think it is important for all of us to, like, totally refresh, especially now, especially now. Yeah. Like, we're all so overwhelmed and so emotionally stressed and just, like, physically overwhelmed and stressed from every like having to do everything all the time yeah and plus the you know the state of the world is really scary and it's just taking a toll so I think I'm glad you took two days it's not enough I knew that like you know, <laughs> yeah. you know every time I I'm like it's there like, forever yeah on the way home I'm like it starts creeping back in but I do think it's important to reset totally every once in a while Absolutely. And plus, like, there certain people just recharge differently. I am a recharge when I'm alone. Like, I Same. need alone time to recharge. And my husband is not. He, he recharges by being around other people. And so that's why, like, the reason I've never really taken alone time is because, like, he just doesn't understand that. Like he's right. like, but why? Why would you want to be by yourself? <laughs> but Aren't you going to be sad and lonely? <laughs> <laughs> but he gets it now, and he was totally supportive. So thank you, Zach, for letting me go. But yeah, yeah, I um, no. yeah, it was good. It was real it was good. good. Yeah. <laughs> it looked real good. Um, all right, let's get into some quickies. All right. Okay, so Jen, my. Information comes from a article on the Post Crescent by Andy Thompson. 
And this is a story about a father's love for his daughter. Okay. Yeah. So in November, uh, a father in Menasha, Wisconsin, called the police and he was in a panic. His daughter had sent him a text saying that she was being stabbed. And so the Winnebago County Dispatch Center called the Menasha police and eight officers were sent to this woman's apartment. One of the officers that was there said that the father had indicated that his daughter was being stabbed, possibly by (gasps) a live-in boyfriend. He provided an address to check on, and so they tried to call the dad back and tried to reach out to the daughter, but they were unable to reach her. So officers are getting positioned outside of her apartment and were preparing to enter when, to everyone's surprise, the woman shows up. She like comes up behind and was like, hey guys, what are we looking at? What's going on here? And it turned out she hadn't been stabbed after all. She just wasn't feeling well, and so she went to a clinic to be tested for covid she sent her dad a text to let him know she was being swabbed. Oh and my fucking god! Fucking autocorrect. Oh changed my it from god. swabbed to stabbed. <laughs> oh my god, that is so funny. I thought you were gonna say she was getting stabbed, but in a different way. Oh, because <laughs> that happened once to me. Like not to me, but I was um when I manage apartments and I got a. A phone call. My friend, I don't want to say. He used to love when I told the story. I don't want to say his name, but he, because I don't know, he might have changed his mind. But he used to love when I told people the story. But I got a noise complaint from his downstairs neighbor saying that the upstairs neighbor, there's a girl in the apartment, and it sounds like she's being murdered. And then when I realized it was his apartment, I'm like, I don't think she's getting murdered. She's okay. I mean, he is killing it, but you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this guy, he was like, um, he's an awesome guy, great friend, but um, he um he was known for being quite the ladies' man. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so oh my god, that's crazy. Yeah, there was actually no disturbance in the apartment involving her boyfriend. The police never drew their weapons. Um, one of the officers said, "We have protocols and rules. Every call like this brings its own set of nuances. We had every expectation it was something legitimate. We have to respond as if somebody's life is in danger." And he said that an obvious tip to avoid something like this is to check a text before sending it to see if any important words have been changed. Oh wow! So. Oh, man. I love it so much because I don't know if you know this about me, Jen, but literally nothing makes me laugh harder than autocorrect fails. I love that website, Damn You Autocorrect. And like I I have kind of forgotten about it. I used to like look at it all the time and then would be like, what are you looking at? And I'd be like, oh, my God, the grandma said he was going to eat his grandpa's but for dinner bread or whatever, you know, and I'd like, I'd just be crying and I forgot about it. And last night I was like, oh, I'm going to look up and see if some autocard fails. And I spent like 20 minutes just like crying, laughing. I was laughing so hard that I just couldn't, like, I was like shaking, laughing. I love I that kind of so laughing. Much. Yes. And I, what, are, what I, like, were some of your favorite to you? Oh, man. I can't remember. I love the ones especially where it's like the person recognizes that they correct it and they keep trying to send it and it keeps changing it to something. I do that all the time. (laughs) And they're finally just like, I give up. I give up. You know what I mean? Yeah. It usually ends up with me being like, God damn it. Never mind. Yeah. (laughs) Joke (laughs) ruined. Ducking (laughs) autodirect. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So anyway, so that's my quickie. Oh, I love it. So my quickie this week is a little bit longer because I thought it contained important information that I think everybody needs to hear. Um, This was uh, an article for The Sun UK written by Georgette Cully. That's where all the most important information comes from. Mm -hmm, Sure does. (laughs) This one might surprise you, though. This article is about how to be safe whilst falling in love over... The internets. Okay. Because from um, apparently from January to November this last year, more than 6,000 Brits reported losses of 63 million pounds to action fraud um, due to fake foreign internet boyfriends. Oh 
my god Isn't that insane it's like you also get it right because you're like people are lonely and how else are you gonna meet people but on the internet so i know so it's times are uh worse than ever when it comes to catfishing apparently uh ruth grover who is a 64 year old retired navy radio operator from hartlepool what is working to put a stop to all of these scams because she became a detective 12 years ago after she was targeted by internet fraudsters after her husband died oh yeah and so she has since helped Thousands of men and women from all over the world who've been swindled out of millions of dollars. She said that after her husband died, she said, according to these men online, I was the most gorgeous widow in the world. I was flattered and I enjoyed all of the attention, Um, but it seemed too good to be true. And I knew I was right for the picking over 50 and a widow because that's who they're kind of targeting. So she said she did some investigating and found out that her, um, Gorgeous military man was actually a scammer in West Africa who had stolen other another soldier's pictures to lure her in. And she said that she was furious and fed up. And that after that, she decided to help other people who have fallen victim to these scams. But she says that's not just older people, that no one is safe. She has clients in her, her 30s up to clients in their 80s. And now she has a team of nine women so Ooh. I just can picture this. I love it. Yeah. Like it's, it's like Ocean's <laughs> 8, 9. of Because um, Ocean 8 was the, the one with the women. Oh. <laughs> I know because I watched it the other night. Um, Ruined the franchise, I'm sure. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. No. But she has a team of nine women in the UK, US, Australia, and Europe who all help her to find these scammers. They also help the people whose pictures have been used. Apparently they're usually soldiers. I guess those are the easiest pictures to use because soldiers, because I guess you could always say like, well, I'm stationed here. So, and I'm stationed there and I can't talk now. And also, you know, I guess if you're a soldier, it looks more right. like you're a good guy. You're a good person, you know? Yeah. But she apparently Ruth said that the scammers are not just using, you know, social media apps. They're using innocent apps like Fitbit, Scrabble, and Words with Friends, anything that has an instant chat on it. Like whatever can strike up a conversation. A private detective named Jack Roberts said that there's even a training school in Accra, which is Ghana's capital, because a lot of uh, a lot of these scams are coming from Ghana. But there's a training school where they're teaching young men um, how to con lonely women. So they're using like young, well-spoken, computer literate, usually male teenagers to do this. Right. They even have elocution lessons, and they're learning how to target people when they're at their weakest emotionally. So isn't that crazy? So uh, uh, Barbara Williams, a 38-year-old single mom and cleaner from Glasgow, was targeted on Instagram in October, two weeks after her father passed away. She said that she was vulnerable. uh, She was in a vulnerable and lonely place, and she had been single for a long time, and this man came out, told her that he was a U.S. soldier stationed in Turkey, and he kept telling her how beautiful she was and how in love he was with her. And he said that he wanted to come over for Christmas and spend the holidays with her, and um, she was so excited to have him come visit. So he said that she would have to email his army commissioner for permission for mm-hmm. him to come. And so he she emailed this email address that he gave her and the commissioner replied by saying that she would have to pay money for him to come. And he sent her a list of prices of how long he could stay starting at $1500 for 1 month and up to $3000 for 4 months. That's so so devious. So it's like the guy's not asking for money. This is it's this other person. Yeah. So she apparently went to her bank and got a loan for fifteen hundred pounds and tried to transfer it, but the bank stopped the payment because they said, "No, this looks suspicious." Yeah. So they stopped it, and then when they the bank stopped the payment, he got really angry and accused her of cheating on him, and mm-hmm. she was heartbroken. Heartbroken. So she wanted to prove that you know she wasn't cheating and that she loved him so she ended up sending him the money via apple google and amazon cards oh isn't that crazy poor thing and so she 
said that she was working overtime and borrowing money from friends just to send him money. And then um, she became suspicious and she demanded face-to-face video with him and he he just didn't do it and he wouldn't do it and then that's when she cut all ties but and then apparently she i guess had sent him nude photos and then the scammer threatened to post online nude photos of her unless she spent um sent more money yeah i know so according to this article december is the worst month for scammers they usually pretend that they want to come see these women for Christmas and then they have them send all their money and then they don't show up to the airport. So all this is to say is that this detective Jack Roberts came up with a list of things that everybody needs to know to avoid scammers. Okay. okay. So obviously don't send money to anyone that you don't know. Number Just one. And then look out for strong, very early signs of love and affection, uh, poor English skills and stories of being a widower, personal or family health issues, and or having no family. And then scammers will look for excuses to not connect in normal ways. You know, they'll say that they have a job that restricts contact, like military personnel or working on an oil rig or something like that. You know, video chats uh, being faked with connection issues, you know what I mean? Saying that they can't, that they have connection issues and can't do a video chat. Yeah. Um, They say, don't accept gifts or cards or give out your home address. Never. So don't ever give them your address so that they can send you something. And don't ever give them your bank details so that they can send you money. Right. Because even if you're receiving money, that could be getting money from a scam scammer for money laundering. Right. So so be and it says be suspicious of everything until you have a genuine offline connection. So if you're gonna meet somebody online, always be suspicious until you have met the person and it's you trust them. So, and it says, uh, research and Google their story. If it sounds unbelievable, it will be 99% of the time. Right. Um, and also do a, res- a reverse search of any images because that's oh, where yeah. it's like, do you ever watch a show Catfish on MTV? No, but I mean, okay. I know it. I know it. Well, they always make it seem like it's this like 30 minute episode of like, who's this guy? Is he who he says he is? Let's find out. And then all it <laughs> ever takes is just one reverse search of a Google image. And they're like, nope. <laughs> but like, then they do. I know. And then they do this whole like, what is going on? Should we still drive across country to confront this person and see if this person is who he says he is? Well, hold on. Let though. me check. Yeah. My producer is saying, yeah, we should. Yeah. Let's still do it. <laughs> so, Good for um, the show. But that's usually where it starts and stops. Like reverse, like look up their image, learn how to do that. But anyway, um, yeah. And I always like to say, if they're hot, then probably not. <laughs> I've heard this. I've heard this one from but, before. Yeah. <laughs> I've come across this before. <laughs> so I know that was kind of a long quickie. I just felt like it was really important information for everyone to hear just because scamming is at its worst right now during the quarantine during this time. And right. I just want to prevent yeah, when everybody's any of our online, dum-dums from getting hard. scammed. Yeah, I will just add to that that there also are like kind of an uptick in if you're like applying for unemployment or you're waiting for your stimulus money, there's a lot of scammers who are trying to scam people on those things. So don't ever pay money to have for somebody to help you with your unemployment or to help you get your stimulus money, though you don't, those are for free. Don't ever pay somebody. And just don't, please don't wire anybody money right now for anything. Um, yeah. I just had, um, and this is this made me so the guy like I wanted to get his information to, to follow up with him, but he just kind of took off. But and I don't have his information, but I had a, an apartment that was vacant, and we have these things called rently boxes on them, mm-hmm. and that there where you can um, you sign up through an app, and then you give them your uh, they do a credit check so that you can get access to the lockbox to view it. So. People are scamming people by taking our link, which is a public link, like to this rently box, and then making their own ad for the apartment that we're renting. 
but oh. making it for far less. And then they'll say, yeah, go view it this way. And the person goes and views it and they think because they're seeing a physical apartment that it's not a scam. And so I went so to go – So they're giving them their like – credit card and or their information yeah or this guy oh it was brutal i so i saw him moving in and i was like oh i'm sorry like what's happening here and he showed me a printed out lease that this person had drawn up online and sent it to him and i was like no i'm sorry like that's not us and and he's he paid him via bitcoin <gasps> yeah Ugh. the guy asked for a bitcoin wire transfer and wow. he and right now, like I don't know if you follow Bitcoin, but it's like through the friggin' roof right now. It, and and so just the idea that this poor guy like took all that he had with his money and his Bitcoin and paid for this apartment and it ended up being a scam. I just felt so bad for him. But so be careful about that as well. Just don't. Yeah. Just don't give anybody any money. How about that? Don't give anybody anything. Just, Nobody. Just be, keep your money be closed off. Keep your money. Yeah. And keep your heart. <laughs> Yeah. Close your heart. <laughs> close your wallet. Close your eyes. Let's all go to sleep. 2021. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Close your eyes. <laughs> exactly. So, all right. That was my quickie. I know it was a long one, but it was a long one. It was a long one. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for the true crime story of this week? I am. Okay. So, I got, I got a, Pre-warning, this one is sad. I mean, they're all sad, but this one is sad uh, and brutal. So I got my information on Dateline. Uh, It's called The House on Pitch Pine Crescent from Andrea Canning. And then really amazing investigative reporting in The Star by Amy Dempsey and Toronto Life by Michael Lista. And then also an article in The Toronto Sun by Michelle Mendel. Okay. What is a great name? Michelle Mandel. Okay. So on August 23rd, 2013, paramedics were called to a house on Pitch Pine Crescent Road in the suburbs of Toronto. A housekeeper had been cleaning the house for several hours when a coworker came to check on the owner who hadn't shown up for work, a man named Caleb Harrison. And the housekeeper said, oh, I don't go in the bedroom when the door is closed, but I've been cleaning and I haven't seen him. So they ended up going up to the bedroom and then were horrified to find that Caleb was there unresponsive. Oh no! And when the paramedics arrived, one of them looked to the other one and said, I've been to this house before. The paramedics went up to check on Caleb. There was nothing they could do. 40-year-old Caleb Harrison was dead. And it was obvious to the paramedics and to the police that this was not a natural death. He had bruising and abrasions on his neck. He had swollen knuckles, scratches on his chest. And when the crime scene photographer arrived, she too remembered being at this house before. Because Caleb's wasn't the first suspicious death to happen here. It was the third. Whoa. Three years before Caleb's death, his parents, Bill and Bridget, had died in the same house one year apart under mysterious circumstances. Those deaths had been ruled accidental and so were not really investigated, even though family members had pushed for answers. Police would eventually come around to the family's view that all three were homicides and that they were all connected. And it would soon become clear that if they had investigated after the first death of Caleb's father, Bill, that both Caleb and his mother, Bridget, would still be alive today. (gasps) Wow. Okay, so the Harrisons lived in this home on Pitch Pine Circle. They created this warm and loving home. It was in Mississauga, which is outside of Toronto. And Bridget, who was the mom, was born in London, Ontario in 1946. And she was this little blonde and she had this fiery personality and she was just a natural actress. And when she was younger, she appeared on the TV show Act Fast and then on the stage in plays at this renowned theater called the Stratford Festival. When she was 16, she got an apprenticeship at Stratford and that was like very exciting and a big honor. And that is where she met Bill Harrison. Bill at the time was 18. He was tall, handsome, athletic, and they fell deeply in love and eventually got married in 1969. The two moved from London to Mississauga. They bought the house on Pitch Pine Crescent. Bill worked in sales and management, and Bridget um, ended up working as a teacher. She then eventually became a principal, a superintendent, and then the school board chair for their area. 
family and friends say that the Harrison house was just this hub of warmth for both extended families. All of Bill and Bridget's siblings and their children, as well as friends and neighbors, would gather at their house every Christmas and every summer for these big parties that they would throw. And Bridget's brother said that they just had a way of making everything magical. And the two... Mm. Bill and Bridget had this true partnership. She was passionate and he was cool and steady. And relatives often joke that they should charge consulting fees for guidance on relationships. And the two were unable to have children naturally. So in 1973, they adopted Caleb when he was just six months old. And Caleb was this exuberant child. He was actually a lot like his mom in that he was fiery. His his cousin said that he was like dangerously curious and his aunt described him as a little rascal. So I'm just imagining just this like, he had like a big smile and a bright personality, but he was also kind of devious. And Bill and Bridget were- Troublemaker. He was a troublemaker, yeah. They were loving and devoted parents. And Bridget being the teacher was always the disciplinarian and Bill was the peacekeeper. And Bill always said that Caleb was his best friend. Mm. So Caleb, when he was younger, he had a hard time in school. He had Tourette's and he got teased a lot. He didn't want to go to college. And so when he graduated from high school, he went right to work. And he turned out he was a a hard worker. He was smart. And so he started working in shipping and receiving in e-commerce warehouses. And he did really well. And so he was rising up. So by the time he was 27, Caleb was doing pretty well. He was working at a warehouse at a retailer called My Favorite Doll, which was apparently like in the showroom was just floor to ceiling Barbies. Can you imagine Ooh. just like floor? It's so creepy. No. Um, he I was, was never smart. a Barbie person. No, I think I had Barbies, but I was not a Barbie person. I was yeah. definitely more of like I was playing bar. My Barbies were playing with my brother's GI Joes, you know. So they were like right. storming things. I don't know. But so okay, so Caleb was like he was smart, he was sweet, and everyone liked him. And it was at this warehouse where Caleb met a 19-year-old named Melissa Merritt. And Melissa was working at the front desk, and she was just out of high school, and she had just broken up with her high school boyfriend. And she'd grown up in this law enforcement family, and some of her brothers went on to work as police as well. But Melissa knew that what she wanted out of life was one thing. She wanted a husband, and she wanted kids. And so soon after Caleb and Melissa met, they were spending all of their time together. They'd take their lunch breaks together and they make out in Caleb's car during like before their shifts Mm -hmm. and Melissa didn't have a car. So Caleb would drive her to and from work and then she would cook him dinner every night. Like pretty soon after they met, Caleb told his parents that they were going to get married and start a family right away. He said that Melissa had lost an ovary when she was younger and she was worried that she might lose the other two. So she wanted to have kids as soon as she could. So, Within three years, Caleb and Melissa were married with two young kids. They were living about a half an hour away from Bill and Bridget. And Bill and Bridget loved being grandparents. They they would watch the kids. They were really excited. But soon, Caleb and Melissa's relationship started falling apart. Caleb was drinking a lot. They had money problems. And according to Caleb, Melissa was prone to making up stories. For example, In 2004, when they were still married, she told their family and friends that she had ovarian cancer, um, but she actually was only dealing with – she had a cyst. And during that time, it came out that she had never lost an ovary (gasps) in the first place. Oh, my gosh. And then in June of 2005, she called the police and told them that Caleb had hit her. He – Uh, He said that he was defending himself after she attacked him, but he was arrested and he was convicted of domestic violence. And that was actually the final straw. Caleb moved back home with his parents. And about a month later, in July of 2005, as he was going through this, grappling with the split, Caleb went to a party. He was supposed to be the designated driver because actually a term of his release for the domestic violence charge was that he couldn't drink but his he ended up getting so drunk that his friends refused to get in the car with him but he got in he drove anyway and as he was driving away he crossed the center line and he hit a taxi that was carrying (gasps) four young men and a driver named michael raymond two of the men were very badly injured and the driver was killed oh my god i know it's 
Uh, sickening, yeah. So Caleb was once again arrested, and he was released on house arrest to his parents' home while he recovered from serious injuries that he he had suffered himself. And the justice system moved very slowly. It would be over three years before he would even go to trial on those charges. But in the meantime, Caleb and Melissa were given shared custody of the kids, which enraged Melissa. She thought that that Caleb was a danger to the children. And a few weeks after the car crash, Melissa filed a police report that someone who she said she thought was Caleb had broken into her house and attacked her in her backyard. But at the time, Caleb was actually unable to walk without crutches. He was still he was still recovering from those injuries, so he mm-hmm. couldn't have been the person to attack her in her backyard. Right. Um, but Melissa didn't know how bad her his injuries were. So Melissa actually reported several more home invasions around the time, always saying that she thought it might be Caleb. The police officers never actually filed charges because they said they were 100% sure that she was making it up. And Caleb thought that Melissa was trying to frame him for something so that he wouldn't be able to see his kids. Mm -hmm. So both Caleb and Melissa during this time, they moved on and started dating other people. Caleb met a woman named Karina, who both of his parents loved, especially his mother. They were very close. Karina said that she thought Caleb, he had messed up and and had obviously had messed up very badly, but that he was a great father and a good person. Melissa met a guy named Christopher Fattore, who worked as a kitchen manager and, and a security guard sometimes. And Chris and Melissa got married, and soon after their wedding, they had a baby girl. The two would eventually have four children together. So Chris, of course, heard stories from Melissa about Caleb hitting her and knew about the drunk driving crash where he killed a man. And so Chris instantly had a deep hatred for his new girlfriend's ex. And he felt very protective Mm -hmm. of these children that he was helping raise. And when Caleb did go to trial for for the drunk driving charge, Chris rallied his friends on Facebook to ask for the stiffest sentence. He wrote, this is Caleb Harrison, the dick that killed someone drinking and driving. He's unfortunately also my ex-wife, my wife's Mm ex-husband. And Melissa grew angry that Bill and Bridget, Caleb's parents, were involved in raising her two children with Caleb. She started filing complaints with Children's Aid, which is like CPS in Canada, and with the police all saying saying that Bill, Bridget, and Caleb were all neglecting her children. Sometimes she would say that they were beating them, and none of these complaints were substantiated. After one claim, investigators, um, quote, concluded that the children had been coached by Mrs. Merritt. So she started denying the Harrisons access to the kids and was warned by the court that if she continued to, continued to do so, she could be held in contempt and face jail time. So when Caleb's trial finally came around, Melissa and Chris attended every day of the trial. They sat in the back and they would make faces at Bill and Bridget. And then during breaks, they would go out and talk to reporters and tell them all of these stories. They would like, at one point, they like passed the Harrisons in the parking lot and like stuck their tongues out at them. Oh my God, grow the fuck up. I know. And Caleb was like, apparently Bridget, the mom was like very disturbed by this, but Caleb was like, just don't pay any attention. Mm -hmm. So Caleb was convicted of impaired driving, causing death in March of 2009. And he was sentenced to 18 months in prison. Melissa and Chris thought that this meant that they would get full custody of the kids, but a judge actually ruled that Bridget and Bill would take over Caleb's rights and that now they would share custody with Melissa. Oh, wow. Yeah. So a month after Caleb went to jail on April 16th, Bridget came home late from a board meeting and she found Bill unresponsive on the floor of the bathroom. The door was locked. Bill was dead. One of the Officers at the scene, a rookie who was in his second year, wrote in his notebook, sudden death doesn't appear to be any foul play. And because the officer wrote that, the case was not treated as suspicious. And so when Bill's body went to be examined by the coroner, he was actually examined by this doctor who had no background in forensic pathology. And so even though Bill had a fractured sternum, bruises on his head, his face, and marks on his neck... The pathologist decided that he had died of cardiac arrhythmia, which is basically like uh-huh, his heart that. had stopped. And the, but he couldn't give a reason why the heart stopped because when he examined him, he was like, he's he was completely he was healthy, he was athletic. I mean, he was 64 years old, and he said his heart had stopped for no reason. But you know, Bridget and the family 
trusted the police. They trusted the doctors that they knew what they were doing. So mm-hmm. Bill was cremated and and Bridget buried her husband on April 22nd. So in addition to her husband's sudden death, Bridget was also dealing with another crisis. Suddenly she realized the day that her husband died, her grand her grandchildren had gone missing. Oh my so, god. Yeah, so it happened that in the days leading up to Bill's death, his grandchildren Without They didn't know this. Nobody in the Harrison family knew, but the grandchildren had told their teachers that they were going on a trip. And on the very same day that Bill died, which was like against the custody order, Chris and Melissa packed up their home, dyed their kids' hair, <gasps> oh my like God. just basically disappeared. So the day after Bill's funeral, Bridget went to court and was awarded temporary sole custody of the children whenever they were found. And Bridget started to believe that there was no coincidence that Melissa had disappeared with the kids on the same day her husband died. Yeah. And for seven and a half months, the kids were gone. And on top of mourning for the love of her life, Bridget feared she was never going to see these grandchildren again. Finally, after all this time, Melissa and Chris were found. They had moved to Nova Scotia, where Melissa gave birth to another baby, and they were living under assumed names. And the police actually found didn't find Chris until he gave a rent check in his real name. And so he was found and arrested. In November 2009, Melissa was arrested, charged with child abduction, and returned to Ontario in, full, in custody of the police. And Caleb had since been released from prison for good behavior, so he and his mother took custody of the kids. And Melissa was released on the condition that she have no unsupervised contact with the children or leave her house without authorization. Melissa's abduction hearing for taking the kids for seven and a half months um, was scheduled for April 22nd, 2010, almost a year after Bill died. But on April 21st, the day before the abduction hearing, Caleb's eight-year-old son rode his bicycle home from school, pulled open the front door, and saw his grandma lying at the bottom of the (gasps) stairs. Oh, my God. I know. I'm sorry. It's really sad. (laughs) Very sad. Bridget Harrison was dead at age 63. So the police thought that she had possibly fallen down the stairs, but the way she was lying and the abrasions, she had abrasions on her chin and her neck that made it seem suspicious. And so this time the police ruled it as a suspicious death and were going to investigate. They focused initially on Caleb because of his past conviction, including his arrest for domestic violence, just made him look suspicious because he was the one who had something to gain from her death. He would inherit mm-hmm. the family house and the money. And then police interviewed Melissa, and she told them all about how he was violent and that his relationship was strained with his mother. But then when police investigated just a little bit more, they found out that Caleb had an airtight alibi. He had been at work all day. His mother had dropped him off. He had still been at work. When she had been found because he didn't have a driver's license. He didn't have a car because of the drunk driving mm-hmm. charge. So the chief forensic pathologist thought that it was troubling that both Bill and Bridget had injuries on their necks that might suggest strangulation, but they couldn't compare them because Bill had been cremated. So after Caleb was cleared, police were at a loss. They eventually ruled the cause of death as undetermined and closed the case. Oh, man. So the family was never told that the case was not being treated as a homicide anymore. They felt like they knew who was behind it, Melissa and Chris. They were the only two people who had anything to gain from these deaths. Mm-hmm. They, Those two were questioned, and they both claimed to have alibis, but the police never followed up on the alibis. Oh, my God. Yeah. Ugh. So the families of Bill and Bridget, although suspicious, were, like I said, they were people who didn't have experience with the police. They were law-abiding citizens. So when they were told that the investigations were thorough and that they had concluded no foul play, they believed that the police and the pathologist had done their job. And they had their suspicions, but they didn't know really what to do other than to just help Caleb get past his parents' death and raise these two children. So Caleb was awarded... Temporary custody um, with only supervised visits from Melissa. She ended up serving some jail time for abducting the kids. But once she was out, she was allowed supervised visits. 
Chris and Melissa moved to a farm near London, Ontario. They had two more kids. So now she has a total of six kids. She started an Etsy store. Chris worked at a poultry farm. She started a blog. Like they basically were kind of like living their own lives. And Mm -hmm. Caleb moved on. He kept seeing that woman. And eventually he came to a point where he allowed Melissa unsupervised visits with the kids. He was a devoted father. He coached the kids' baseball teams. He took them to the park every day. He was doing kind of the best he could. But by the summer of 2013, there were again these issues between Melissa and Caleb, and he decided he was going to revoke his permission for unsupervised visits. And on August 23rd of 2013, there was going to be a custody hearing. On August 22nd, Caleb took the kids to their baseball game dropped them off with Melissa. Uh, His girlfriend, Corinda, was supposed to go to the game that night and then stay over with him, but she was behind on an online course she was taking, and she didn't, like she said that Caleb's house, the internet was too spotty, so she was just going to stay home. He called her that night around 11. He said he was going to put on a movie, and when they hung up, Caleb turned off his phone, as he did every night, because he was a very light sleeper, and then the next morning, Caleb was found dead. Oh, my God. So Elizabeth Gallant, who was Caleb's aunt and Bill's sister, had been there for the family when Bill had died and when Bridget had died. And when she was called to the house after Caleb was found, she called the chief of police who had been in charge of the investigations. His name was Robert Boyer. And she said, Caleb is dead. How could you let this happen? This time, there was no doubt that this was murder. The homicide department took over immediately and decided to look at all three of these deaths as connected, and the family pointed them straight to Melissa and Chris. Two weeks after his murder, Melissa had filed an application seeking sole custody of the children, explaining that her ex-husband had suddenly died. She said in that filing, she said, this news was and is tragic and very shocking, and the application was granted. Melissa actually tried to go to Caleb's wake, but was turned away by his family and friends. Oh, wow. And within weeks of his death, she and Chris left Toronto again and headed to the East Coast with all six of their children. But this time the police were watching every move because they were they were on to him, finally. So on January 2014, Chris Fattori and Melissa Merritt were arrested and charged with the first-degree murders of Caleb and Bridget. And after a 13-hour interview with police, Chris confessed to killing Bridget and Caleb, but said that Melissa didn't know anything about either. He denied any involvement in Bill's death. But days after the confession, police put Melissa and Chris in a room together, and they believed they were alone, and they started to talk. And Chris said, I'm taking the rap for it to give you accessory after the fact. I told them, I told you after I did it. And Melissa said, why did you do that? And Chris said, because I want you to get our children. Wow. So when the police searched their home, they found a laptop with extensive search search history. Two months before Bridget was murdered, there was a search for what if a grandparent has legal custody and they die? Oh, my God. I know. Three weeks before she was murdered, it says, how long does it take? They searched, how long does it take to die from choking? And how long does it take for a person being strangled to pass out? Oh, my God. The month before Caleb's death, there was a search for easy ways to kill and get away with it. I love, like, when things like this happen, and to always hear the defense attorneys try to explain these things away is always amazing to me. Right. Well, in this case, they basically were like, well, this was a shared laptop. Either one of them could have do it. So you can't point to either either of them. Oh, my gosh. There was also Caleb's uh, DNA was found under Chris's fingernails. It, it was obvious that Caleb had fought back when he was attacked. Okay, after three months of testimony and four days of jury deliberation, both Melissa and Chris were found guilty. Uh, Chris was found guilty Good. of murdering both Caleb and Bridget. He was found not guilty of murdering Bill. There just wasn't enough evidence to connect him. And Melissa was found guilty of murdering Caleb. Uh, a mistrial was declared on her charge in Bridget's death after the jury couldn't reach a verdict. But m- both Melissa and Chris received mandatory sentences of life in prison without the possibility of parole until 25 years have passed. 
On the final day of their sentencing, as Chris and Melissa both stood to leave as they were being taken out of the courtroom by police, over 25 members of the Harrison family stood together shoulder to shoulder and watched them leave. And apparently the children are now being raised by Melissa's family, despite Caleb's wishes in his will that his cousin be their legal guardian. And the remaining family members are now united to make sure that there is some kind of accountability for the police for their failures in this case. And Doug Blackwell, who's Bridget's brother, said, we're not going to back down because we don't want this to happen to any other family. And as a, just as like a footnote to this, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> apparently, Jen, you would have guessed it, murdering an entire family together doesn't bond you for life because in the years since their conviction, uh, Melissa has gone on to marry a fellow inmate at the Women's Correctional Institute where she's housed. And Chris, who is doing time at Beaver Creek Penitentiary, has just recently put out an ad for companionship on a website called CanadianInmatesConnect.com. And in his ad, it says, I'm on this site to find someone I connect with, someone smart and mature with a youthful side, someone with a great sense of humor and doesn't mind being silly and having fun, someone who enjoys working out and staying healthy, someone who shares my interest. And then he says, uh, they I say, love, like, I love, <laughs> they say you know, opposites attract, but in my experience, they don't last. I'm not looking for anyone controlling. I've been there, done that, threw away the t-shirt. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. So I love that too, that even when you're like a fucking, uh, like in jail for murder, you could be like, and I want her to be thin and fit <laughs> and have a good attitude. <laughs> And take care of yourself. <laughs> no uggos. Yeah. Oh, my God. Sorry. I dropped the mic a couple of times. I was so mad. So mad. Yeah. You were just like, you were dropping the mic. Yeah. yeah dropped the mic. Um, <laughs> God, that's so frustrating. Oh, yeah. Man. So I, I definitely recommend going to read those articles um, in the Star and in the Toronto Life magazine. I think it's Toronto Life magazine. They're both – there's like – so many more details about the story and especially about how the first two murders could not have been investigated. Like there's just a lot behind all of that and it's, it's really twisted and, and awful. And anyway, oh, so man, yeah. oh man. Oh, good story though. Thanks man. Hey Sally. Hey Jen. Would you like to hear a nice, nice love story? I, yeah. I really, really would. Really nice. (laughs) I've had my head filled with this these three murders all morning, and uh, I'm you know what? I'm ready for some ice cream. Okay. Well, okay. Here's what's funny about this story. It's it might sound a little familiar because it's kind of like a story that we've done before. So much so to where two weeks ago, I started to do a story that was similar to this, and then Sally was like, "Wait a second. Wait a second. I already did that story and I totally <laughs> forgot about it. But so I had to double check this one, but there's no way that this story was done before because it ha- this article is from like two weeks ago. Okay. So, okay. There's two articles. One's for cbc.com written by Stephanie Tobin and Ramraj Charvendrian. Mm-hmm. And an article for buffalonews.com written by Allah LSR. Okay. Okay. 68 years ago, when Fred Paul and Florence Harvey first met, they were teenagers in Wadsworth, which is a small town in Newfoundland, Labrador, province, Canada. Which, okay. Isn't that Newfoundland and Labrador? Those are two really cute dogs. <laughs> Canada. Sounds like a lovely place. Cute dogs, um, Canada. So they spent every moment that they could together when they were teenagers. After they had met, they would take walks after church and then they would kiss in between classes and they'd go to see concerts together. And Florence actually lived across the bay from him. Uh And so every night during the two years that they were together, Fred would flicker his porch light before going to bed. It was his way of telling her good night and that he loved her. That's really That's sweet. So sweet. But he told CNN that she was my first love, my first girlfriend, and my true love. So sweet. But in 1955, when Fred turned 18 and Florence was 15, 
his dad who worked it says worked in the fishery which i i guess it was a fisherman so he couldn't be there to walk his sister down the aisle at her wedding so he asked fred if he would go to nova scotia on his behalf to walk his sister down the aisle and he did and then but after that he ended up going to toronto to see his brother and then when he got low on cash he ended up getting a job to earn some money and then he ended up staying there for an entire year so but when he came back home florence was gone yeah she was well, you know wait after around a year. she's got a life to live yeah yeah so she moved on with her life uh, so she went off to St. John's to take a teaching course for um, summer school. And then they, they ended up just going their separate ways. So they both, you know, went on with their lives. They both got married and to other people and started families. Florence married a man named Len. And together they had five children. And they were happily married for 57 years. But in 2017, she unfortunately found herself single again when her husband, Len, died of cancer. Mm. And then two years after that, Fred's wife of nearly 60 years, her name is Helen, also died suffering from different health issues, including dementia. And they had two children together. So here they are. They both suffering a loss of their spouse and but they still they weren't really in communication with each other but what they did have in common was that both of their brothers were living in a senior's home together in Marystown yeah so when she visited her brother his brother was there and when the two brothers made the connection you know and remembered that you know they used to be together when they were younger and now they're both single they got um, a wild idea and they the brothers started to plot to get the two together i love so, this is like a movie like the two brothers in the nursing home like i know plotting a grand adventure in the movie they would go on a road trip to get the two together it would be adorable. totally <laughs> i could see that so fred's brother wanted to give fred's number to florence and make sure that Florence called him. And so, but when Fred's brother asked Fred if it was okay to give him his number, he said, sure, but you know, but he said, she'll never call me. Like he just never thought yeah. in a million years. So he gave Florence his number and she kept it. And then she ended up calling him just a few days later. Yay, um, good job, on, Florence. Yeah, it was February 15th, which was a day after Valentine's Day, and Fred and Florence finally reconnected after 65 years. She's, I know. She said, it was Valentine's Day, and I knew his wife had died. I was lonely. He was lonely. So I thought, well, I'll just call him and offer my condolences, I guess, because he had lost his wife the fall before, and I wanted to tell him that it does get easier, you know, because she had lost her husband three years prior. Right. So, um, so she said that she knew how he was feeling. So when she called him, they ended up reminiscing about growing up together, and they laughed at like memories they had from a lifetime ago, and um, and Fred said that it was completely unexpected. He said it was a surprise. I didn't expect her to call. But as she said, you know, it's lonely when you lose your mate after 60 years. So that conversation was the first of what would turn into many hour-long phone calls over the next few months. So Fred said, two, three days after the first call, and I felt like I wanted to call her again. I don't know. I just, I felt like I wanted to talk to her and to have somebody to talk to was good. He said, we started talking about our courtship years ago and all the things that we had done together. And before you know it, we were on the phone three to four hours at a time, four times a week. So after five months of talking on the phone almost daily for hours and hours, Florence finally decided that she needed to go see Fred in person. And in June, she had let him know that she might be planning a visit soon at her son's house in Ontario, that she might go see him. Yeah. Florence said, I have a son in Georgetown, which is only 10 minutes away from you. This is what Fred is saying. He said, Florence said, I have a son in Georgetown, which is only 10 minutes away from you. And I'm going to come up to see him. And maybe you and I can see each other, see if we're compatible or if we like each other. And then on July the 5th, he had a birthday party 
there with his family and Florence was supposed to call that night around 10 o'clock like they usually did. I can't believe they're staying up that late. <laughs> I know. That's what I was just thinking. I was like, 10 o'clock I can too late for a phone call. <laughs> barely make it past nine. I know. So she called him that night at 10 o'clock as she usually does. And then he said, he asked her, are you in Springdale, uh, Newfoundland now? Because she has a son there. And she said, no. And then he said, are you in Grand Falls at your own place? And she said, no. And he said, <laughs> are you in Nora's arm? And she said, no. And because and, she has a son there as well. And then he, he said, you're not in Ontario, are you? When he was telling the story, he started to choke up when he was telling this memory. And she said, yes, I am. I'm 10 minutes away. And so at that, so he's 84, she's 81 and it's past 10 o'clock. They're both in bed, but he ended up hopping up out of bed because he couldn't believe that she was only 10 minutes away. And he said, I want you to come over I want, he said, I want to come over and get you. And she was like, no, it's too late. It's 1030. We'll meet tomorrow. And then he said, no, no, I want to come get you now. So a few minutes later, her son knocked on the bedroom door and said, mom, get your clothes on. We're going over to see Fred. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what's so cute. So he wanted to impress her. So what he did is he went to the garage and he got down a box of Newfoundland seashells and he's used them to spell out welcome Florence in the driveway. Oh my gosh. I know. Oh, but apparently, oh, it says that he couldn't actually find the seashells. So he I got some chalk and he wrote that instead. <laughs> I was thinking, I was like, that would take a long time to I put seashells out like that. But he took the, he wrote it in chalk, which is still very sweet. And then he said, a few minutes later, um, they drove in and I went out and I shook hands with their son who I had never met before. And I said hello to his wife. I went around the car and Florence was getting out of the back seat and I gave her a kiss on the cheek and I held her hand and walked towards my house. I knew right away that she had taken my heart back again. Oh. And Florence had the same feelings. She said, I knew like he did that there was still something there after all those years. And so then at day after day, they just started to spend time together. They started to court as Fred said, uh -huh. he said that she would come over during the day and spend a few hours with him and then go back to her son's place at night. And then just after two days of them hanging out, just after two days, they were already talking about getting married. I guess yeah. if you're, you know, you're like, you know, you know, and if you don't want to waste time if you're 84. Yeah, he's he said, we knew right away that we wanted more than just what we were doing, courting. Our kids were all appalled that we were so anxious to get things moving. And you know, within less a week after meeting, we were out shopping for wedding rings. <laughs> he said, we told our kids, you know, we're 81 and 84. We don't have all that much time. We know what we want. And so we pushed ahead. Because here's the thing is that right before Florence came and met him in person, Fred was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Oh, yeah. okay. And so he said, I think Florence is an angel. She came here knowing what my sickness was. She was just an angel dropped out of heaven for me. I don't know where I would have been without her. And because of Florence, he says, is she gave him a reason to want to keep living. Yeah. So he says he doesn't know if he would have went through the chemotherapy or tried to get better with cancer if he hadn't had such an incentive of love in his life is what he said. I, right. He said, I think she's just wonderful, just wonderful. And I love her very much. And because of the COVID pandemic, they did have a wedding, but they had a, they had a very small wedding with just family. And on August 8th, Fred and Florence exchanged vows in front of family and close friends at the Norville United Church in Georgetown, Ontario. During the ceremony, she said to him, you were the first young man to walk me home in my teens, and I guess you'll be the last man to walk me home. <gasps> Isn't that so sweet? Oh. And then after, <laughs> after exchanging vows... Fred brought out his accordion and he sang a Ricky Skagg song, I Wouldn't Change You If I Could, to her. Oh my I gosh. Mean, it couldn't on. get sweeter. And so he said, uh, Florence says, we do everything together. We just love being here together. 
I and I love every moment I spend with him. And for now, the newlyweds are enjoying their new life together in Ontario, but they hope to be able to return to their hometown sometime in 2021 once the pandemic settles down, hopefully, in order to enjoy some old memories while making new ones in the place that they first fell in love. Oh, do you think he'll switch on the porch light for her? I hope so. <laughs> just the sweetest oh man uh, that was apple gotta pie. love it <laughs> yeah gotta love it i loved it that was awesome i was like but, when you started i was like dad we've definitely done this one but no no i mean it's just see this makes you feel even better that like this kind of thing keeps happening where people are finding love again in their 80s yes and 90s even Yes. We've probably our, done like multiple we've I it's more than two. I think yes. we've done like three or four stories like this. And it just, you know, we still got a lot of living to do. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of life left out there. Yeah. Um, so I love it. I love it too. I I can't wait to see pictures because I bet they're oh, so cute. They okay. are really cute. <laughs> All right, dude. Let's do something dumb and something we love. Okay. You start. Um, All right. I'll go first. I am going to just stay away from anything deep this week Okay, because there's been plenty of that dumbness um, going going around. And I'm just going to say this is such a little thing, but like – do you know how, you know, you have something that is like bothering you and there is a solution, but you just never – take the time to find that solution. Like I love coffee. I drink Mm -hmm. coffee every day, but I don't like coffee once it gets even like remotely warm. Like I want it to be piping hot all the time, right? I love hot coffee. I'm constantly putting it down, leaving it, having to like warm it back up in the microwave all the time, right? What what problems? What a problem. But I'm just saying it's like it's like such a small annoyance, right? So that's just dumb that I've just let this small annoyance go. Because did you Uh know that there are such things as coffee warmers (laughs) that you can just get like a little hot plate to warm. Right. So I finally ordered one and Jen, it has changed my life. (laughs) I am telling you what. Awesome. I got it this week and I'm like, oh my God, I just have like hot coffee the whole cup through. It's amazing. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and it just makes also makes me feel like, what else am I not just solving for myself that I have been like living with for all of these years? Oh yeah. I hear you. I just got a um I, here's the worst part about it. I've had this thing. I've had this thing for probably like 10 years. Yeah. A shark steamer that oh. somebody gave to me a long time ago, a floor steamer. Uh-huh. And I caught myself look shopping for a floor steamer and I was like, wait, <laughs> I think I have one of these. <laughs> and I did, and I've been steaming my floors. I love it. For the last I have- couple of weeks. And I'm like, why haven't I always been steaming my floors? This is great. Fuck them up. Fuck them up. Fuck them up. Seriously, we have a floor steamer too, and it was revolutionary. <laughs> It really is. <laughs> I tell you, I want to know, you guys, I'll ask this question uh, after this, when this comes out, I'll ask on Instagram, but I want to know what are little things like that that have changed your life, like made your life better in some way. Not that it's, ch- not that having hot coffee is changing my life, but it is, it, I am, I am genuinely enjoying it. I am genuinely like so excited to have coffee and have set coffee. it on my little thing and be like, ooh, when I forget about it and then pick this back up in 10 minutes, it's still going to be hot coffee. It's not going to be gross warm coffee. And I'm Dude. pretty pumped about it. Now I, f- I should get one because I, I don't have one. Right? But you I need it. Like, yeah, yeah. For your tea. I do. Sure. Yeah. I'm back on coffee now. Oh, I you're back on coffee. <laughs> oh, Jen, I think I've solved acid, the question of my acid, acid reflux, reflux problem. <laughs> oh, is it the uh, coffee I drink during the day and the wine I drink at night? <laughs> is, is it the spicy food I eat? <laughs> the tomato-based sauces that are in 75% of the meals I eat? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I might have yeah, solved both. Um, <laughs> so what do so, you got? Great. Um, so for something dumb, I guess um, I'll just say I, I'm dumb that I 
didn't have more than two days to uh, vacation or be alone because that was pretty <laughs> wonderful. Um, it's not enough. You need at least three nights. I think I, I told know. you that. And uh, something I love is um, I just watched last night. I've been waiting for it to come out. And it actually came out in just the movie theaters. You know, everything's been getting released like on early access. Yeah. So where you can pay money for it. I've been waiting for it to come out. But it finally did. It was $20 to rent, but I decided to invest in myself. Mm -hmm. You should. I paid the $20. You're Um, worth it. It's called uh, A Promising Young Woman. Oh, how was it? It was, I, okay, I'd been warned about, like, our friend Jen Snyder, who's a comedian, and um, great, I love her, she posted a thing on Facebook saying, warning, maybe don't watch it, you might be triggered by it, and blah, 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 and I was like, what? Like, it looks like, not to say fun, like, it looks like a dark comedy, like, but I watched it, and it is kind of triggering, dude. Okay. It is, but it's, um... But it, it's really – I thought it was great, and I feel like it's one of those movies that will um, stay with you for a couple of days. Like, I felt really weird about it when it was done. Yeah. But luckily, okay. Powell, our friend Powell had seen it, so I knew I could talk to him. <laughs> you could process your feelings around it? And by processing our feelings, it was just us shooting gifts of uh, women fainting at each other <laughs> back and forth for a so couple of minutes. So he gets it. He gets it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I, I recommend it. I think it was really, real good. Okay. Real good. We just watched um, Lupin. Is that good? I saw it. I'm like, great. Okay. It's great. Yeah, it's, it is subtitled. So just know that. It's a French okay. It's a French show. And so it's subtitled. So you have to be prepared for that. But it is, it's like a caper. Every show Ooh. is a caper. And it's the main guy is just. Oh, um, it's a television show? It's, it's, like, a, it's like five episodes. Okay. Yeah. It's nice. really good. It was really good. I'm sad that we're done with it, but there's going to be another oh. season. So, um, so yeah, know. I, I recommend recommendations. That. All right. Well, dude, we did it. We did an episode. Um, hooray. Hooray. Yeah. Hooray for us. Hooray for you guys. All right. Well, you guys, thank you for another great week. I hope you guys are, ha- are uh, healthy and happy out there. If you want to talk to us, find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, at Dumb Love Podcast or TikTok. I'm still TikToking. Or you can you can email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com. Yep. And make sure to get out there safely with a mask on and do something dumb for love. Dum-da-dum, dum-dum, 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 d